Coming up on this week's show, conservation news making headlines around the world. We have been stealing the future from our children. Challenges of conservation and combating climate change are connected. Corruption is being created by wildlife crime. Speciesism is very much the same as racism or sexism. We must rethink our relationship with wildlife, the environment and each other. Join us as we uncover the innovative, unifying and urgent solutions we need to protect the planet from ourselves. This is the art of conservation. Welcome back, back in studio. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for coming through and joining us oh, again nice today. Nice to be here with you. In the dungeon, Shannon and I are back from our travels. So thanks, everyone. Um, last week was fantastic. Our discussion with Ian Michler on the back of the announcement from South Africa's Minister of the Department of Forest, Fisheries and Environment, Barbara Creasy. The results of her high-level panel, I think, have kind of sent shockwaves across conservation circles in Southern Africa, I think in part out of appreciation and out of surprise at the at the decisions to unbundle captive lion breeding and uh, the breeding of rhino for commercial purposes for their horn. So, I mean, what we do know and what has come out of this in the last week is that it's going to take some time to figure out ways of implementing these decisions. And although it's gone through the panel, the minister, cabinet, and has been ratified, um, there is still a ways to go you know, from, our, from South Africa's constitutional perspective over how these things can legally be brought about. But what has been interesting was that the first few days, the pro-traders were very, very quiet and the hunting lobbyists were very, very quiet. And we're starting to see rumblings coming out as early as, well, as recently as the last two or three days. And what seems to be gathering momentum is this idea that the Private Rhinos Association and Predator Association of South Africa and a lot of these pro-trade lobbyists are convening their resources and looking to bring about a class action um, lawsuit against the minister. And I think it's going to come down to the semantics of wording and how they've put these things together. But what it looks like it's going to be predicated around is the idea that the South African legal system is predicated on the Dutch um, on the Dutch Roman legal framework. And in that, uh, under South African laws, that if you own the land, you own the assets and the animals on that land, and they are your property. So they're trying to say that on the one hand, there's these very light, and in my opinion, bullshit arguments, oh, it's going to lose jobs and you're creating a welfare issue. So, no, no, no. The traders and the captive line breeders created the welfare issue. We're trying to fix it. And you know, there were a couple of comments that threads that I picked up on during the week. One was, well, you know, now what are you going to do with the twelve thousand lions, you know, that are captive bred? And claiming your propositioning sort of the, the media as though the wildlife, the animal welfare issue has been created by those who sought the ban rather than yeah, those who are breeding these animals in the most abject oh, yeah. and deplorable conditions. So all of those other arguments are bullshit. But the legal semantics, we must remember that I think it was in 2019 or 2018, the pro-traders successfully overturned and lobbied government on multiple occasions. So this is an area where they have got a better track record than the state does. So it's still a hell of a long way to go, but resounding feedback from around the world was great job, well done. 
South Africa finally taking a principled and moral position on global conservation platforms again, um, which we encourage and we hope that they, they follow through. But a long way to go. And if you want to understand the complexities of that, I encourage you to listen to last week's episode where we were able to interview Ian Mechler, who is a director and founder and also the main character in um, – co-founder, should I say – and main character in the documentary Bloodlines, which um, exposes the the disgusting industries um, around captive line breeding. So check that out. Ian, thank you again for your time on that. That was – that was pretty awesome, um, and let's hope that you know they, you know, this class action. Well, it's going to be interesting, though, you know, Simon, because I, I, I think that if the rhino breeders uh, form an alliance with the lion breeders, I think it could well backfire on them very badly. I think that the 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 rhino breeders could find that it would backfire on them because there's so much. Uh, heated opposition to the lion bone trade, that if they in, in any shape or form align themselves with that, mm. I think it could uh, it, it could backfire on them. I, I definitely think it's going to backfire yeah. on them. And I mean, some of the arguments that are coming up against <clears throat> against the decision about you know how it's um, how it's going to destroy jobs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, I'm not I'm not buying because I think it's a short sighted view. Because if we had to consider what has been ratified and has been pushed forward by um, Satsa, Kira Powers, Ian Michler, all of these people that have been considering this from a tourism perspective, that the damage to brand South Africa would be such that if we don't do this, the revenue loss through tourism backlash it would probably exceed the job losses anyway. So we can't look at it in the microcosm of what is just good in your business rather than what's good for an economy and a, and a nation's yeah. pride yeah. and reputation. And, and not all <clears throat> jobs are created equal because going back to the analogy you've used before about um, like human trafficking – Oh, if we stop human trafficking, we're going to lose jobs. Like, where's your line? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's a moral line sure, at some absolutely. point. Yeah. 100% right. Yeah. And I think it it's good to bring that back into this, going that it has been decreed that these practices are morally bankrupt and that has gone through ministers, cabinet, parliament, public, media, you name it. Everyone is in agreement with that except a few people that are going to lose profit. In their own if, pockets. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And something that I'm very glad is also getting a lot of media attention is the continued statement or the continued theme in, the, in uh, Minister Creasy's feedback that talks to transformation. And if we look at the, the, the private breeders and we look at all of those guys, there is near zero transformation within those industries and within those organizations that say that they represent so many. Mm -hmm. And we have to put those socioeconomic advancements back into the conversation of, of conservation. I really do believe that. And it should be forefront. So I think that the minister is right to lead with a position of saying, apart from it being morally bankrupt, apart from all of these ecological and um, moral positions and economic positions, there is also a transformational issue. And I'm excited by that because it means that the minister is starting to see the connection between defending biodiversity and the upliftment of people and uh, of 
people that have largely been previously disenfranchised or excluded from the from the conservation or biodiversity economy. Mm-hmm. So I think she is 100% right to bring that onto the same table at the same time as all of these other discussions. Uh, and it should be a, a moment of critique for anyone that's trying to perpetuate the idea of trade in any capacity. Yeah, so I mean, you know, pe- people are, are arguing that, um, you know, well, what's going to happen to the lions and, and the job thing and everything. But, I mean, we... We know about one case, and this is one of many, where COVID, there was a guy that had a bunch of lions and COVID had hurt him because he had no tourists to come shoot the lions. So he went out and shot him himself so he didn't have to feed him anymore. I mean, that's the kind of people we're dealing with. They don't care about the lions at all. They don't care about anything but their own profit. So these, these animals are in horrific conditions already. They're not treated well. They're suffering. They're starving. Yeah. So, I mean, these are things that, that not everybody is going to see on the outside, but we know it's happening. And I think it's, it's important to talk about that because what is likely to happen is that assume the, the projected number of 12,000-odd captive line. It oscillates between 10 and 12 and a half or yeah. wherever the number is right now. But for the sake of the discussion, we'll call it 12. Um, those animals are bred to die, either for the bone trade or for the hunter's bullet. Yeah. They're bred to die in the most despicable, deplorable conditions anyway. To argue the animal welfare position right <clears throat> now, I think, is, is sheer lunacy. Yeah. And also, to your point, is that the, the unscrupulousness, if there's such a word, yeah. um, of these traders is such that during this phased-out approach – the vast majority of those lions are going to be killed anyway. Mm. It's not like we're walking in overnight and we're going to rescue 12,000 lions. And if you think that that's going to happen, then that's quite naive, to be honest. And we're not going to be dealing with 12,000 destitute lions. It's going to be far less than that. Mm. Because I'm pretty sure as we're speaking now, there are people that are trying to unbundle their their mm. operations as profitably as possible yeah. before it get before that power is taken away from them. And, and so I think that that's going to be an issue, and the world needs to be aware of that. That although we might agree that because of how badly those animals have been treated, how genetically compromised they that's are, it. how more than likely they they are um, carrying disease that makes them unsuitable candidates for rewilding or breeding programs for rewilding or any some such, mm. um, that euthanasia for a lot of those animals is the most humane thing to do. Controversial statement, but mm. if it pisses you off to hear that, um, then then please stay close to this discussion because that's how complex it is. If the three of us, the most three of the most devout pro-life conservationists on the planet can recognize that, then you must understand how nuanced and how deep and how, how complex this issue actually is. Pro-animal life. Pro-animal life. Yeah. What did I say? You just said pro-life, so I don't know. Pro-animal it, it, life. It yeah, no, we're not, we're not, we're not being a whole different discussion. Yeah, it's a whole different discussion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not, we're not fans life. of humans per se. Simon! <laughs> You can't say that. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. You cut that. That's a problem with a podcast. You can't see the tongue in my cheek. No, anyway. but you can cut that. No, well, no I'm, joking. I'm joking. I'll tell all your nieces and nephews how oh, you feel about them. There we yeah. go. There we go. I mean, look, I was in one of these places once that tried to say they weren't captive lion breeding. 
but the 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 place I was in who thought of themselves as a humane rescue, I mean, they clearly were not treating these animals well. And I remember seeing a white female white lion whose whose stomach was hanging on the ground, and she was so bloated and and overweight and in such a bad way and like just dragging herself. I mean, it was horrific. This poor, and this is just one one baby of so many that I've seen that just don't deserve this kind of treatment. And that's what these guys are doing. Yeah, it, it's disgusting. There is no upside to it, no matter what their arguments are. And I'm grateful that the Minister of South Africa has put the country on a, uh, back on the track of morality. Mm. And now the world is watching because the, I believe that the world has wanted this from South Africa is to stand up and go hands off. Mm -hmm. The world has been waiting for it. Now that that's happened, the world is getting behind us and yeah. will support us in these agendas. Yeah. Um, trust that. Minister, please continue with the bravery. Trust that. We're behind you 100%. Yeah. Um, moving on. Um, well, let's let's carry on with the with the hunting moment for for a second um because you picked up on our wonderful friends at the NRA and um are going through some some legal troubles it seems well we know back in January January 15th the NRA National Rifle Association filed for chapter 11 bankruptcy protection um, they filed a lawsuit to dissolve um, the organization, alleging that it had abused its legal status as a nonprofit. And in filing in August, New York prosecutors accused the group of corruption and said its longtime CEO, Wayne Lapierre, had instituted a culture of self-dealing, mismanagement, and neglect, uh, negligent oversight. And he was basically paying for a lot of personal expenses through the company. Um, to, you know, one of many issues that um, that he's had on his plate. I mean, and this is the same guy a week or two ago you, Peter, wrote an editorial about because a video was had surfaced of him struggling to kill an elephant properly and the actual hunter That's had to right. come yeah, in. No, and, it's an appalling... Uh, uh, horrific. Yeah. So... And in October, the Wall Street Journal reported that the IRS had opened a tax fraud investigation on him as well. So it seems that the Texas judge threw out the bankruptcy filing on Tuesday, saying that the case was filed in bad faith in an effort to avoid litigation in New York. Um, and the decision came after New York Attorney General Letitia James and others questioned the legitimacy of the bankruptcy filing. Now, um, James says, a judge has ruled in our favor and rejected the NRA's attempt to claim bankruptcy and reorganize in Texas. The NRA does not get to dictate if and when if and where it will answer for its actions. And our case will continue in New York court. No, no one is above the law. So I am, I am so glad that they have seen through what the NRA is trying to do, and they're upholding the law here and not allowing them to just do, do as they will. Because if you'll remember back when this all surfaced, even Trump said to a news reporter, ah, they should just reorganize in Texas. They'll accept them there. You know, they, they'll, they'll welcome them with open arms because Texas is a Republican state. New York is not. 
And it's and even in this article, it talked about how it's the Republicans that are primarily the hunters that back the NRA mm -hmm. that that would welcome them to come to their state mm -hmm. and reorganize. Well, when Le, when Le Pierre's uh, favorite statement or most quoted statement is that the the need for the NRA to still exist was his assertion that the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun was a good guy with a gun. <laughs> and that was his sort of rationale for it. But I'd, I I liked um, Judge Harlan Hale's uh, statement on why they were rejecting mm -hmm. the the filing for bankruptcy. And, he's, and it was stated that it was to gain an unfair litigation advantage and to avoid a state regulatory scheme. So in other mm -hmm. words, basically don't try and hide in Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which – Coming out of Texas, I think, is pretty powerful as yeah. well. So they don't have the support base that they thought they would. Yeah, and he's a shit shot. <laughs> but what I don't understand is why, why is it a Texas judge? Shouldn't the bankruptcy filing be in New York? Why, are, why is it a Texas judge that threw, threw out the bankruptcy filing? I don't know. That's, it, that's the part that confused me a little bit. Um, so just as a Dallas judge. Yeah, uh, and the bankruptcy court in Dallas dismissed because the NRA's chapter. I think they're just case. trying to use different state laws and things to their Confuse advantage. It. Yeah, but I think if you file for bankruptcy, you must do it where you're registered. I would assume, and if you're registered in New York, you must file in New York. It, that that's the one part I didn't quite understand. Yeah, I mean that's a, a legal thing that I, I don't get, but uh, it does appear that they. It does appear that um, <laughs> that the NRA is is not going to have it their way anymore. I love that the NRA is, is cool. claiming that New York had a corrupt regulatory environment. Well, that's that's rich. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I mean, but we'll we'll have all of those articles up on the uh, the episode notes for you guys. Yeah, and the New Yorker as well also carried the the piece of uh, the video itself of Lapierre and his wife in the Okavango Delta on the trip in, I believe it was January this year. And uh, it was filmed by a crew for a series called Under Wild Skies, which is an NRA-sponsored television series mm. to try and promote the organization's um, you know, shitty public profile, mm. which is hysterical um, because he pretty much botched the hunt, mm. um, as is the case with so many. So, Well, in one of the articles I was reading uh, last night about this, um, apparently what one of the things he would do, and I've, it, he's, it's not the first time I've heard this out of a big organization, is they will, they will have two points where they, their, their private jet needs to go from and to. But then they don't log a bunch of stops along the way for personal use, which we know is quite expensive, you know, to take a personal plane and just stop somewhere, drop off friends, pick up relatives, stop somewhere else. So you are only logging the, the end point, which was for actually for business. And apparently there's been there's been some eyewitness accounts of that, like testimony. But I am also glad that things like that come to the fore because it's something that we as our little foundation, we take very, very seriously. Yeah. Transparency and accountability in a public benefit organization or a non-government organization mm -hmm. or whatever you want to call it 
is absolutely critical. And yeah. I think that there is a consumer base that's starting to be uh, a lot more critical, publicly critical yeah. of organizations that don't adhere to any kind of good governance protocols. And we saw that, interestingly enough, in um, in the room when Creasy delivered her statements of the high-level panel last week, Sunday, was that the greatest objection was, surprise, surprise, coming from the hunting fraternity who stood up and said, well, you haven't engaged with us and we, we should have the chance to engage. And the minister basically stood up and said, um, sorry, no, you have engaged. <laughs> you have been represented and you will be engaged with again. This is a feedback session back in your box. But what was interesting, and I'm kind of deviating from my point a little bit to frame this, but there's another organization, the Custodians of Responsible Hunting and Conservation, I think their name is. It's Stuart Dorrington, um, Rupert Brown, and others that broke away from the Professional Hunting Association of South Africa, welcomed the minister's statements because she pushed forward an agenda that, whether I agree with it or not is not the point, I'm just recounting, of um, – pushing forward an agenda for authentic, responsible uh, hunting practices in South Africa. Why would you be upset with that if you were a legitimate organization? Mm. Yeah. If you're a hunting organization, you should be happy with that because she didn't make it illegal. A hundred percent. If she was coming in to say, you cannot regulate yourself, but we are going to work together to improve the international image of your industry – because we recognize authentic hunting. Why would you be upset? Yeah. You would only be upset if that contradicts your reason for being, your revenue generation, and your, your organizational structure. Yeah. It's the only reason why you would object to that. So, I'd, I'd, I mean, I looked across the room <clears> to <throat> Rupert Brown when this was going on, and I said it to him afterwards. I said, oh, you must be happy. And he said, yes, we welcome it. Mm. Um, and why wouldn't they welcome it? Yeah. says mm. volumes about the organization as it stands anyway to object in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I mean, yeah. and, and, and talking about, you know, the, what the public stands for, I mean, I, I have a friend who's an, a private pilot. And I remember many, many years ago, he stopped working for a nonprofit because they were doing exactly what I was saying, where – the CEO would take the private jet for personal medical visits, medical doctor visits for himself when it's oh, it's a corporate jet that costs a lot of money. My friend's like, I'm just not going to work for them anymore because I, I can see the fraud that's happening in front of me. And I think if everybody that has those morals stood up for it, because there's going to be a, a, a long chain of people that that will see it. And if everyone stops allowing it to happen, then they hopefully start to see that what they're doing is wrong and they stop. I, I agree with you 100%. And I hope that comes to, to that. Uh, Recon Africa, my favorite. Um, they are – and our friends at National Geographic, Laurel Neem, who is a wonderful features writer at Nat Geo, and she – actually broke this story initially, I would guess, probably close on a year ago. Mm -hmm. And it's been gathering momentum and momentum. And uh, they released another piece yesterday, in fact, on the 11th of May. Uh, her and Jeffrey Barbie 
which is another follow-up, and it's called Oil Company Exploring Insensitive Elephant Habitat Accused of Ignoring Community Concerns. Namibians allege Recon Africa disposed of wastewater unsafely without permits and ignored concerns about potential impact of oil drilling on water and wildlife. And, um, yeah, this, this chorus of international condemnation for these practices is growing. CNN ran a piece on it, Sky News have run a piece on it, Al Jazeera are on it. And uh, yeah, we are still putting together our live panel discussion mm. with Recon Africa, and we believe that that's going ahead. And as much as I deplore their, their reported operational infringements in Namibia and Botswana as it currently stands with the information we currently have, I do respect them for saying, come forward and let's have an open, real discussion about this. Um, and I hope that they're, they're taking it as seriously as as we are, um, and we will respect that discussion. But and just that to, discussion's got to happen. Yeah, and just to kind of add to that, I mean, I know you and I have been talking to a lot of people and doing a lot of our own research, and you know, the little bit that they claim that they're engaging with indigenous people we've been told they're actually doing it with the wrong people, people that aren't actually the indigenous people of that land from hundreds of years ago. They're doing it with like very recent people yeah. that just moved there 80 years ago. Like that, they're not the indigenous people. Yeah, I think, yeah, there is there are huge sort of anthropological nuances in the northeastern parts of Namibia and going into Botswana, where all of this drilling and, and exploration is taking place. And you know, even if we go back to why that panhandle exists at the top of Namibia, that was a trade deal between the Germans and the British to give them access to the Zambezi River for trade. Mm -hmm. So you've got literally centuries of displaced people along the along that uh, sort of panhandle in those northern parts of Namibia and Botswana at the hands of colonizers, whether it be the Germans, the British, and arguably now the corporate colonizers of Canada. So we've got to be very, very careful, and those nuances must be understood. And I think that this is probably my biggest statement to Recon Africa, is that if you're working with international best protocol, best practice, etc., how you would do an EIA to drill in Texas, that paperwork would be sound as a pound. You would have to you know, dot the I's and cross the T's all the way, and you would have a very in-depth understanding of what an authentic, deep, and legitimate EIA looks like. So now the statement of saying, well, we've complied with the Namibian and the Botswana government but if your practices on better understanding your own impact exceed the countries that are providing you with a permit, don't you have a moral obligation to engage with what you know you can do, not what you have to do? If you're really taking impact on people and planet seriously, you will do everything that you can, not just everything that you should. There's a big difference. Yeah, if you look all along, um, <clears throat> you know whether it's this um, aspect here, or whether it's the uh, logging, or whether it's fishing, those big foreign corporates, those very powerful people, <clears throat> will push their own agendas yeah. to their own advantage every, every time. time. Yeah. Oh, well, you know that firsthand. I mean, your editorial this week starts to talk on that. You did a piece on sea spiracy and uh, the, the 
sort of the industrialized fishing practices around the world that are raping the oceans. And to say you got some interesting feedback would be an understatement. Well, well I did, yes. And um, yeah, I wrote that uh, in April this year. And, um, you know, I was, I was impressed with the film. I really was. And I said so in no uncertain terms. Well, the film's been praised for what it's done and has also been castigated for what are apparently errors of commission, omission, and, and so on and so forth. So not unexpectedly, I got quite a bit of criticism for, for my, my piece endorsing the film. Um, and I thought, oh, well, here we go again. You know, I'm quite used to being, <laughs> being picked on not by Not your people. first radio, yeah. No, it's not. But um, So I was, I was initially dismissive of the criticism, I must say. But then I, I read a bit more, and then a, a friend of mine, who I, who I have a lot of respect for, um, sent me an article written by Daniel Pauly. And I thought, okay, I must read this and take note. Now, Daniel Pauly is a, a very, very well-renowned uh, marine scientist, and he's also one of the most vociferous critics of the, the International Fishing Organization. So when he started to say, look, you know, I fully endorse the notion of having a film like this, mm -hmm. and this film certainly points out all the, the bad things that, that happen, but unfortunately they've made a lot of mistakes. They've, they've emphasized things which they shouldn't have done, and he took issue with them for having a real knock at the NGOs working in the fisheries area. And so I thought, well, you know, let's take this seriously. So I did. And I, I you know, I, I urge anybody who's interested in the subject to read the article, read my, my review this week. And I mention and I link the article to its right. source because I think he does put some very good points together and you know I, I you know I can't run through them all here it's just too too long but um you know he 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 took issue um well I, I had to say you know I, I do agree with his assessments mm. uh, I have to you know I mean he's he's a he's a very well respected man and he's put his points of view very very well um but I don't think that I was completely duped by it at all but perhaps my antenna weren't as sharp as they should have been that day when I was writing. And I, I was, and I still remain, very, very angry at what has been done in the oceans. There's no question about that. Um, but one of the things that I found very interesting, oh, one of the things that he, he said was, look, I think it's wrong to say don't eat fish altogether. He said, you can't do that. He said, because yes, you can. Yes, you can. No, well, no, no, but you've got to hear him out. You've got to say not on a global platform, but where you have the power of choice, make well, the choice. Well, that's exactly what he says. He says he's not. He doesn't speak out against veganism, and he says, you know, veganism quite well may well be um, either the choice or the imposed thing that we have to do in the future. But he says, as we stand at the moment. There are billions of people around the world that rely on fish as their primary source. But then don't they go out and fish for themselves? They don't yeah, but rely that's the, on... No, that's the point. So he's, he's okay. saying there are lots of people there. So he said you can't make a blanket statement about, f about fish just like that. 
is that that is something that may be happening down the road, but you can't tell people in, in Indonesia and Malaysia and all those things, from tomorrow you can't eat fish. So, no, but there's, I assume yeah. the difference is industrial, industrial fishing yeah. and, and subsistence fishing. But, you know, but that, that's huge. And what, what he's saying, and I do agree with him, and you know, maybe we, we would disagree a little bit on this. You know, he says, look, if, if you can follow a vegan lifestyle and not eat meat, not eat fish and all those things, good for you. But that's not a choice that is open to everybody on this planet Agreed. right of this moment. 100% and I think that's that. the only point he's making. No, I agree and, he, and he says, while, while we're facing these issues, surely we should be, instead of knocking the NGOs, we should really be supporting them and urging them to do more and more work in terms of confronting bad practice in both governments and in the industry mm-hmm. and getting them to change. And I, and I think that's those are valid points. But, you know, one can bat those things backwards and forwards. But one of the things that I found really interesting because he criticized the, the film for uh, referring to outdated papers. And, you know, for – for decades and decades, from the 50s onwards, we've, we've known that um, we're pushing this, the sea's ability to recover. And then there was a big report, I think it was in 89, that said, whoa, you know, we've actually reached the point where we can't do this any longer. And sure enough, the, um, the fishing yields from that time onwards have just Despite more and more fishing boats out there, the yields have been less and less and less. So it really does tell you a story. Mm-hmm. But um, so you can, you can look at that and say, well, you know, conservation hasn't worked. Uh, you know, we've just got to stop doing this altogether. There's no possibility of sustainability. Mm-hmm. And he said no. And I, I did read the paper later, and it was a PNA, PNAS study that. Um, that says although overfishing remains an extreme global concern, it isn't the case everywhere. In fact, the study revealed that wherever fisheries are being scientifically monitored, there's actually been an average increase in abundance over the last while. So it sort of turns it a little bit on its head. And I mean, I think we should be we should be overjoyed the fact that, you know, maybe in some parts of the world the the fish stocks are recovering through very um, direct conservation intervention. Does he have science, scientific papers to back that up? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay. No, it's, um, And so it suggests that where conservation measures are in place to curtail overfishing, that the stocks recover and they recover quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And this is the sort of thing that we, we, we know um, just um, – because we know these yeah, things, yeah. leave nature alone, and, and nature yeah. recovers. Yeah. So I think there's a there's a there's a um, there's an aspect of that. But you know, before we get too excited about that, um, the the study was unable at this stage to include the the fisheries of Indonesia and China, particularly which make up about 30 or 40% of the overall fishing. Now, that's not to say that there aren't good news stories there as well, because there are people that are working very, very hard in those environments. But until that study comes in, and that's what they're working on now, uh, we don't know if it's a worldwide trend or whether it's something that has been successful in these particular parts. So, you know, I thought that that was quite interesting. And, uh, I, I, 
Um, I mean, yes to science, yes to intellectual exchange that says, hold on a second here, one size does not fit all, don't paint with one brush. All for that, that's why this podcast exists, is for those discussions to give, to give airtime to those points. What I do worry about and what I hope people don't hide behind, and I use that language deliberately, is because I think that this um, you know, extensions of the idea of the hypocrisy fallacy that says, well, because you're wrong about something, it makes me right about everything. So as long as you're right about the semantics of whether it's 13%, 10%, 40% off, yeah. means that I don't have to act. And I worry that this, that this democratizing of science gets us into a point that if I choose to not accept your science, I don't need to take responsibility for my actions. And that is categoric bullshit. And I'd, I want to make sure that as much as we have these conversations, the bottom line, irrefutably, is that our, our, our treatment of the oceans is not sustainable on a global level. So to hide behind the examples of a few regional exceptions to that, to try and suggest yeah. that things are not no, as bad this, as they this seem. Is, this is more than that, Simon. I, and, uh, well, well, that's, that's where yeah, I'm, I'm getting uh, to the question. Yeah. And my question, my, my, my question is this, is that if we are using outdated data, where it's safe to assume that it's probably worse than when that data was created. So if that data is shocking, it's probably worse now. I think in, when we look at it on a global level, I'm not talking about the geographic exceptions. So... If this is the case, what, what, in your opinion, do we do with this information? Well, look, I, I think do we the, get lost in scientific th debate? No, I think the first thing is to say, well, if, if this is working here, then surely we should be doing everything that we can in our power to make sure that that is re replicated everywhere as best practice. Okay. So that's the one thing. And the other thing I would say that if, the, if this was coming from – a statement from the fishing industry itself yeah. saying, look at us, look how good we've become. And we all know that industries are very good at pumping themselves up and saying how good they are. If it was coming from the industry itself, I would, I would be very wary. Okay. And the fact that this is coming from a very, very highly respected scientist okay. um, who's not just speaking alone. These are other scientists that are involved. And and he is at the same time extraordinarily critical mm. of the fishing industry as a whole in terms of yeah. the worst things that it does. Uh, I, th I think we've got to take note of it and say, 100%. you know, there's, nobody is saying that fishing isn't in trouble. Nobody's saying that we're not over-exploiting the oceans uh, and that we aren't destroying whole ecosystems and there aren't all sorts of iniquities in, uh, happening um, but when there is something positive, let us acknowledge that and praise the people that are getting that work done and that, support them. That I absolutely agree with. Um, and I think my, my commentary is not so much directed at the author, but rather at the reader. Not you, but I'm talking more broadly in that I, I worry that we find reasons to not engage as a society. As long as I can shoot a bullet hole yeah. in your argument, then that no, means no, I don't have oh, to yeah. act. And no, I no, worry no, that, that the, that's true. But you know that that applies to everything that we talk about. Absolutely. And it's up to us um, 
as a group of, of really concerned people that are also on a journey. We're also mm. trying to understand how things work. We're not saying that we know exactly how it should mm. be and if you don't do this, you're a wicked person. We, we're trying to understand this process as much as anybody else. And if we, if we are promoting that kind of uh, feeling in other people and say, wow, I didn't know this, maybe I should look more deeply into it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Then we're doing our job. But, you know, he, one, yeah, of the big, one of the big points that he raises, and I remember when I first wrote the article, Simon, I think you, both you and Shannon jumped on me because one of the, the things was an inference that don't worry about human plastic waste like cotton buds and bottles and all that sort of rubbish because it's only just a small part of it. The big thing is the fishing industry and its discarded gear. Mm. And he jumped all over that. And I, I think he is right in that because, um, yes, the fishing gear thing is a very, very big issue. Mm. It's largely out of our hands except for lobbying and having a go at the fishing companies and getting them to do better. But to infer that we shouldn't worry about something else, even if it wasn't properly intended that way, yeah, is, is, is irresponsible. We agree and with and I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I agree with him. You know, no, completely. I mean, completely. People, people everywhere are sloppy, indifferent, and quite frankly can't be asked to do anything that's mm. positive in the world. So to give those people any kind of opportunity to say, oh, well, there doesn't matter, so why should I bother? Mm. That, that, that is totally irresponsible. It matters absolutely. Mm. Every woman cotton bud that. you throw away or bottle, yeah. if you don't make sure that goes into some kind of credible recycling, mm. you're doing a great disservice to the planet. So he, he jumped all over that, and I, I said, okay, point made. I, you, yeah. You're spot on there. Yeah. But, you know, that, that said um, – and, you know, on top of that, uh, uh, beside the plastic, I think we, we have to acknowledge as, as human beings that 80% of the pollution in the ocean comes from our actions on land. Yes. Not just the plastic, but the runoff from agricultural, the, the, the chemical pollution, all of those sort of things. And, and we're responsible for all of it. You know, there's no, there's no question about that. But, you know, that said, the, the fishing industry still has a lot to answer for. Uh, there's no doubt. The discarded gear is a huge issue. Mm. Uh, you know, one of the things that's been pointed out is that even once the gear has been discarded, it's not just the plastic that, that's there and breaks down and, and, and destroys ecosystems. But those discarded nets carry on fishing. Yeah. So fish still continue to swim into them. Yeah. They drown and they they they're lost and so and and so that that is a huge problem. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think it's been quantified to the the extent to which um, mm -hmm. in terms of tons and all that sort of thing. But it really is. And then of course there are all the issues around uh, human trafficking and um, and slavery that are are um, linked. Uh, linked to the fishing industry. And then even on the, 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 the blue tick, you know, the, the marine stewardship stuff. And he's very defensive that, of that. Really? Uh, That's interesting. No, he, he, because he says those are the efforts that are being made and as imperfect as they are, we should support them getting better. No, but, but hold on. I, I think you can support the, the concept of the initiative without supporting 
Yeah, no, I think that I think that's yeah, I think that's really what he is doing. Shitty organisations yeah. that are not getting the job. Uh, done. They, I th- the, the the problem with all of it revolves around the fact that there is no guarantee, no body on earth can have a little sp- uh, spy in the sky and see every fishing vessel in the world and see how it's operating and what it's doing. Uh, we can't possibly. So, Well, hold on a second. You can to a point. You can to a point. But, but the, the, I think the point is that mm. it's, it, it's, it's very difficult to monitor and it isn't being monitored and therefore you can't – you you can't see through the darkness of all of this and and see what is being done and yeah. what isn't being done. I mean, I think that that is the. Actually, we always come back to it yeah. somehow, don't we? Is that the international alignment in organisations that are upholding international fishing or conservation treaties, laws, policies, agreements, whatever you want to call them? But you know, the technology is there to say that AIS, which is the automatic identification system, which is on every ocean-going vessel by international maritime law, must have these activated. So you can see the the ship, who they are, where they're registered, well, um, what know, their intention is, and where they are in the world at any given yeah, time. Look, I have little doubt that that is… That we just don't of, have that, the enforcement sort of, to follow up and go, hey, yeah. you shouldn't be here, get out. I mean, Who's doing that? You've got, got to get that technology into. You've got to get it written in law. You've got to, you know, there's a hell of a process to go through. But you know, the the, the fact is that um, all the marine stewardship products, with the best of the will in the world, and I'm sure most of it is extraordinarily well intended, but it falls short of the promise. You know, it says sustainable. Yeah but it can't guarantee sustainability. And even one of the senior scientists working for the, um, for the, the, the Pew Environmental Group, you know, um, he says, we would prefer, that's the, the Pew Center, we would prefer that they didn't use the word sustainable. And you know, I, I think him saying that is you know, an acknowledgement that we can't guarantee, therefore we should not use the word. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd make the parallel to pharmaceutical companies which are there for the health of people. And if we had to say that disclosure to protect the health of people, if that is a regulation that already exists and we are not following through with food which is consumed for the health of people, then I think that that is a moral choice because we've got vast sweeping industry mechanisms to decide and to evaluate the legitimacy of consumer claims. Yeah. And to to simply go, well, it's well-intended, is it's just not good enough. Well, I think you know, I, I look at it like this, you know, that we've got um, – there's the worst you can do there's something better that you can do, and then there's the best. And I think for for most things that we do on this planet at the moment, we we stuck in that there are better things that you could do, but we we're far from reaching the best in so many aspects of our lives in terms of consumption and and what we do. So um, as much as I agree with you, I I, I don't. <laughs> well, I mean that 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 that's fine. You know, uh, George Monbiot. Um, is a, a very well-known environmental activist and political writer. Uh, I mean, he says 
Yes, the film gets some things wrong, but it does expose the grim ecological destruction of the Earth's oceans, and, and that it does. And there's another organization called Forward Lab, which I only discovered quite recently, describes itself as a global platform for mindful humans. And uh, they say um, of the film, despite its obviously one-sided approach, the lack of intersectionality, and I'm not sure what that really means, and simplification of an extremely complex issue, the film succeeds in both raising awareness and starting a conversation about ocean conservation. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps the whole film should be taken with a pinch of salt, but the overall message remains true. And I endorse that completely. Yeah, it's yeah, a great and so, But as I, I, my final statement this week is, but if we are to take sea supremacy with a pinch of salt, then I suggest that we continue to take everything that the fishing industry says about itself with a bloody big handful, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, and I stand by that. So yeah. it was a very interesting process for me because I, I think mm -hmm. it, it, it's responsible for all of us when – I mean, I don't think I did anything wrong in my support for Seaspiracy no, and I stand by almost all of it. But I'm very glad that some of these inconsistencies and errors were pointed out to me. And I'm very glad to have this forum to talk about those things because I think all it really does is it broadens the conversation. Mm -hmm. And if you're prepared to say as a, as a fierce defender of oceans, <clears throat> I think maybe I got this slightly wrong and somebody else has persuaded me that there's another side to the story. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what it's all about. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do agree with you principally on that, but I don't think that education should ever be the sort of self-flagellating idea that says, well, I didn't know then, but I do now, and now I'm apologetic for what I didn't know. Um, I think we're accountable for the things we say and do with the information that we have at that time. But we have to acknowledge that as a society, we learn, we grow, we adapt, our contexts change. And it should be that conversation that says we can evolve. It's not about getting it wrong. It's about evolving. So we thought we could hunt and fish ad nauseum. We were wrong. We've got to evolve away from that. Well, I, mean, and I think it starts with yeah, this conversation. Yeah. So, well, this, I mean, this says, it says a lot also for the scientific process. Because yeah. 50 years ago, even 20 years ago, we thought this. Yeah. And I think science is all about saying, well, we thought that, but now we've had a little bit more information, mm. more studies have been done, and now we're beginning to think this. Mm. And I think that that is the scientific process. Yeah, and one it's that continually self-critical yeah. and saying, hang on, we got that wrong. Mm. And now we 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 know yeah. better, so now we need to do better. I mean, there's always that wonderful story about an academic. A, it's apocryphal, and I, I don't know who said it, if anybody said it. But it, the, the point was that as an academic, the best thing that could happen in my life would be when one of my students proves that I was wrong. <laughs> because that means that you, mm. you're handing it. This is what I thought, and I taught you well. I taught you to, to question what I've done. And you found a mistake in my work, and I'm so grateful for that. And this partnership means that we yeah. advance. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, anyway, on, on that, mm. I think that there is 
Uh, it seems to come up every now and again. And an organization, it was first published, as I can find it, in a platform or in a website called chemistryworld.com. And Tom Metcalf was the journalist that unpacked this idea of 3D printed digital ivory saves antique artworks and maybe elephants. And this is anybody that's close to the rhino discussion knows the idea of the pitfalls of the idea of 3D printed rhino horn. And anyway, so there is a synthetic material that looks identical and seems to age in a very similar way that ivory does. Um, but it's printed out of a 3D printed out of a combination of resins and all, all kinds of stuff and has now been called digital ivory or diggery. Uh, as the title and researchers say it will be invaluable for restoration projects genuine elephant ivory was often used in important artworks especially in ancient china for thousands of years and blah 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 now it's damaged now we've got a way to fix it and then there's very little but there is one or two throwaway statements in the piece that talk about the assertion well if we can 3d print ivory then that's going to save elephants it doesn't work, guys. You're fueling demand. That well, that's essentially the thing, isn't it? You know, you, you you can't get away from the basic issue. Yeah. And that the demand is there, and the more you make the the, the product accessible to a wider audience, so that demand will will, will grow. Mm. I mean, you know, we we know how economists have battered these things backwards and forwards in terms of rhino and in in ivory and the the point is nobody nobody really knows mm -hmm. but will will a synthetic product ever supersede the the original uh, i doubt it you know you you even have people in terms of of plant matter um where you know um the, the the thought has been put forward that if you if you cultivate plants for medicinal use, that there will be people that say that those cultivated plants won't have the potency of the wild ones anyway. So, you know, you're dealing with that, that kind of, mm. of mindset. One interesting thing that I did read a little while ago was uh, that a synthetic um, tusk was, was made as close as they possibly could get it. Because uh, it not only has to look like it, it's got to sort of mimic the, the structure and everything. Mm. Uh, and the yeah, and the scratching and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And then they, 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 they shoved a transmitter into the, yeah. into the ivory. Yeah. And then that enabled them to follow where the ivory was going. And that was very interesting. Yeah, it only that. went as far as a certain place. So whether it was discovered or yeah. somehow, you don't know. But uh, very interesting, yeah. I'm I'm not a fan of it. It does worry me. And I, I, I hope that these very clever people, and, and there must be, I mean, the chemistry and the, just the thought and the thinking that goes into developing these things is massive. And I hope those same brains can see that this is very, very short-sighted yeah. thinking. And we, we certainly don't believe it's, it's really of value. Other moral challenges facing the world. Sandpark CEO Fundesili Mkateni takes special leave after serious allegations made against him. This came out late yesterday. 
announced on Tuesday, Sandparks, South African National Parks, announced on Tuesday that its CEO, Fundesele, would take special leave from his work engagements following an assault and sex-related complaint laid against him on Friday in Skakuza uh, in the Kruger National Park. Well, I think we just have to say that's happened and wait for things to emerge. I mean, the rest of it is is really speculation and hundred uh, percent. Uh, we can't, we can't, uh, we we can't be the jury on a man who's just, you know, if if if, if he's been properly accused, the law will take its course, and mm. we'll see what happens. But. Um, I, I, I mean, hope. If, uh, if he's guilty, I hope he gets what he deserves. But I, I sort of hope that he isn't. Yeah, I he genuinely hope that isn't, he isn't, and that we can restore hmm. whatever needs to be restored. Yeah. yeah. I, anyway, I, I think that's that's why I wanted to raise it, yeah. and you've said it perfectly. Is we're not going to jump on any bandwagon on this. No. We're going to wait for legal processes to do its to run its course, and. Um, as that happens, so shall we have further discussion, I guess. But not before, I think. Um, there was something that came to light yesterday. And um, our good friend Damien Mander reached out to us yesterday evening, late last night. Alerted us. tell people who Damien is. Yeah, I'm about to jump into okay. that. <laughs> Uh, so Damien Mander is uh, the founder and CEO of the International Anti-Poaching Federation. And if you've seen or heard of Akashinga, the brave ones, James Cameron did a, a short docky on his work in northern Zimbabwe with an all-female, all-vegan, all-badass um, anti-poaching unit and team that has had the most incredible success, not just in fending wildlife, but also in uplifting those local communities sur surrounding the parks in which they operate. But uh, an absolutely horrible story, and we, we don't have all the details as yet, and we wait for investigations to continue. But there is a press release going out imminently, if it hasn't done already, and the title of which is Hero IAPF Wildlife Ranger Escapes After Being Set Alight and Left to Burn Alive in Zimbabwe. Uh, in a joint undercover operation targeting suspected rhino poachers in southern Zimbabwe, an international anti-poaching foundation ranger was run off the road by two vehicles early evening on Sunday, this past Sunday. Using the ranger's own shoelaces, the suspects then tied his hands to the steering wheel of the car, covered his head with a jacket, doused the vehicle in fuel, and set it alight. Miraculously, he was able to escape through a window as they began exploding from the heat of the fire. The victim has suffered severe burns to about 30% of his body and was evacuated by air to private hospital where he has been stabilized. Um, and he's being isolated under protection for for obvious reasons, um, but is expected to make a long but hopefully a, a full recovery. Uh, just prior to the incident, two suspects were arrested by local agencies in connection with the alleged rhino poaching, while the remainder of the investigation is ongoing. And um, This is a male ranger, though, yeah, right? Not one is, of the women. Yeah, so it was a, an undercover operation of which we don't know the, the details, but yeah. we assume it was some kind of a sting or something was going on. But I just want to use this opportunity, one, to say 
Dama, to everyone at IAPF, we're thinking of you. And um, please, no doubt this will, will have huge implications. So please go and check out IAPF.org and donate to them. They're an incredible organization and they're already thin reserves are going to be stretched looking after this chap. So please support them. And it highlights again the level of danger that rangers put themselves in front of every single day to protect animals. Please, please support rangers. Absolutely. Please, yeah. uh, International Ranger Federation, um, Game Rangers Association of Southern Africa, IAPF, Lead Ranger, Thin Green Line, Please go and check out all of these organizations and support their work, even if it's just sharing their stories. Um, but we've got to do a better job of protecting our rangers. And to this chap, speedy recovery, and thank you for what you're doing. Um, but so a lot of our conversations, guys, always focus on Southern Africa, subcontinent, East Africa quite a bit. But there is a lot going on from a legislation perspective in the States, in particular Idaho, and uh, some fairly shocking legislation seems to be going through there. It's something you picked up on, Shan. Yeah, so Governor Brad Little of Idaho just signed a bill, SB1211, into law on May 5th to go into effect July 1st. This bill allows for the slaughter of 90% of Idaho's 1,500 wolves, basically reducing the number back to 150 Backed by the agriculture industry, the, the law also now approves the killing of these animals by any means, including traps, snares, aerial shooting, running over with snowmobiles and ATVs, as well as wildlife killing contests. Uh, the bill seizes Wildlife Management Authority from Idaho Fish and Game Commission and supports the hiring of contract killers with an additional 190000 from the Idaho Wolf Control Fund, which already receives 400000 to kill wolves throughout the state. Now, I, I looked a little deeper into this bill. Um, well, first of all, with the wolves, wolves cause, are causing less than 1% of cattle deaths. Um, so, Is that in Idaho? Yeah. And wow. there, so this whole bill, it's... It's based on, you know, livestock deaths. Well, we must do this because they're killing all our livestock. But they've already brought this to life that that's not the case. Um, a lot of people there think they're wasting tax dollars. But it's not just about wolves. I, I've, I've sent you the bill. I want mm -hmm. this bill attached. And there are... Um, there are some numbers and emails for the governor for people to follow up on this. But there's a lot more buried in this bill. It's all about money. Um, and it's all about hunting of many animals. So special game tags. The commission is hereby authorized to issue two special bighorn sheep tags per year. Um, auction bighorn sheep tag. Um, it shall be auctioned off by an incorporated nonprofit organization dedicated to wildlife conservation selected by the commission. The tag shall be issued by the Department of Fish and Game to the highest eligible bidder, and no more than 5% of all proceeds for the tag can be retained by the nonprofit. <laughs> and then there's another one with a, a whole lottery of the bighorn sheep tags. So they're going to do a big lottery. 
So this is this is the part that I've found is a little loophole here. Monies in the account from the lottery Bighorn Sheep Tag shall be utilized by the department in solving problems between bighorn sheep and domestic sheep, solving problems between wildlife and domestic animals, or improving relationships between sportsmen and private landowners. So that, to me, says, oh, so we could go to the bar, have a drink. Well, it's private hunting on land. It could be anything. That's To me, that's a huge, like, well, we're improving relations. I'm, I'm taking them to the movies. Like, it could be anything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely anything. Um, so then there's more. They've put in here that there should be issuance of free permit or tags to minor children who have life-threatening medical conditions. And that and that that must be certified by an eligible, qualified nonprofit organization. Well, I don't understand. <laughs> we giving the token to hunt the animal to a kid I'm, to I'm, minors because they have a life-threatening medical condition. So because they're going to die, and they they must want to kill something. So we're going to let them do. So it was the, the basis of what? of these poor children? Let's give them something nice yeah. to do. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. What bullshit is that? (laughs) It pissed me off. But the the science says, as far as I read it, that that the wolves are responsible for less than 1% of cattle deaths. Exactly. And that that, uh, the vast majority of people that live in Idaho, Idahoans, is that the right word? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Idahoans, believe that wildlife belongs to all citizens. Mm-hmm. And that management decisions should be made without political influence. Yep. Um, you know, the members of the commission, the members of the Idaho Fish and Game Commission, oppose the bill five to two. Yeah. And but yet somebody's pushing it through. So they, that's what I'm that's saying. The they took the power out of their hands somehow. And there's a whole list on the bill of, I think it was on the bill of who the yays and the nays, or not on the bill, I found it somewhere else, of who the yays and the nays were and how they got it passed and who they went around. I mean, I'm just looking at the Senate bill statement um, on the legislature.idaho.gov for Senate Bill 1211. And there's a full timeline of where and how it came to be, who voted what, exactly Mm, as you're saying. mm, Yeah. And, um, I, you know, w- one of the things that you said at the top of that story, Shen, about uh, sport hunting and basically get rid of them with snowmobiles, mm-hmm. etc. I mean, that's legislating an animal welfare issue. Yeah. You know, I understand, having grown up in Southern Africa, that there are challenging moments where you've got to consider how you manage wildlife population numbers within the context of a specific ecosystem within specific fenced land. Um, Southern Africa's got a huge issue with elephant under a very similar discussion of saying, well, we've got to get rid of them. You know, do we cull them? What do we do with them? And those are real ecological management, conservation management discussions. And I understand that. I understand that the need to have those. But to go forward and say that you can run them over with your ATV or your snowmobile, mm-hmm. Or for contests, shooting contests, which we've seen are disgusting and deplorable. Mm-hmm. I mean, that 
I can understand if you've got to put forward a wildlife management protocol that is not popular. But to do it in such a way that promotes violence against animals with a scant regard to animal welfare over and above everything else is in itself a real issue for me. Yeah. Because that's promoting a sense of violence. And 90% of them as well. And that's just yeah. the wolves. But, you know, if, if, they, if they do that, 90% of the go, that, that immediately then puts the wolves back on, on the, the endangered, endangered species, species list, list yeah. which means that they won't be able to do that. Yeah, it's, you know? so it makes no I, sense. I, it really doesn't make sense. I mean, there's something else buried in here. Black bear, mountain lion, and predators may be disposed of by livestock owners, their employees, agents, and animal damage control personnel when they're attacking the livestock, and it should not be necessary to obtain any permit for that. Lives, and then it says, livestock owners may take steps they deem necessary to protect their livestock. So again, free reign to do anything they want because there's a loophole they put in here. And it talks about wild animals and, and birds damaging property as well. So, I mean, they're even killing the birds. So let's not move to Idaho because this is ridiculous. Like, I'd, it, I've never seen such an awful bill. And I'm sure they're out there, but why this guy passed this bill, they've buried so much crap in it. Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that same guy took his snowmobile and ran over a wolf and killed it. Probably didn't kill it, left it maimed in the snow. Yeah. Will go back home and cuddle his dog. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It really doesn't add I'd up. I'd probably it, kick it, his dog in the head. You know, there's uh, there's the something really bad in the, the, psycholo- the, in the psyche of people like that. There really is. I mean, yeah. I think uh, they, they're universal. They don't just live in Idaho. No, unfortunately, it's, it's global. Yeah, it's just playing out in the Idaho. People of Idaho need to contact this. So, what what can help. happen? I mean, is is this gone through? It is has. It, it has. Okay. So, the most that can really happen is to call Governor Little, and I'll and I'll give you his number. I want everyone to hear it: two zero eight three three four two one zero zero. Call him and tell him this was a mistake. And his email: you can email Governor at gov.idaho.gov so gov.idaho.gov email him tell him this is a mistake tell him how you feel it's absolutely ridiculous make this public share on social media mm. tell we're, we'll put talking points and everything up there i mean it's absolutely appalling that they would pass something like this and if you i'm going to i'm going to call out every self-proclaimed ethical hunter and every self-proclaimed you know, conservationist who is a hunter that says they do this for the betterment of. Um, either prove that this is the best way forward or use your voice as the ethical hunter, as the hunter conservationist to stand up against this kind of stuff because you will be counted. You know, this idea that all hunters are conservationists and all hunters, you know, do the best for uh, animals and animal welfare and it's about respect of the animal etc if you drive your atv or a snowmobile over a wild wolf because you're legally allowed to you've totally contradicted everything else you say you stand by so if you genuinely stand by that stand and be counted or be judged with the rest absolutely and on that note um thank you so much for listening to us today uh, if you've got any comments or questions please reach out to us at info at artofconservation.com. Follow us on Instagram 
uh, in LinkedIn and Facebook at Art of Conservation. And um, we will be hosting a series of Clubhouse chats over the next couple of weeks as well, where we've got a, a weekly slot on Thursdays. Um, so please reach out to us. And if you need an invite to Clubhouse, let us know. We've got a few in the bank that we'd be happy to share with you. And now that in Android is now on the platform as well, that should open up the discussions prodigiously. So please reach out. And just in closing, as always, if you would like to hear something or hear an interview or there's someone that we should chat to or you think that we should chat to you, then reach out to us, info at artofconservation.com. And I know you had a question for me. Can we do it next week? Yes. So, so Monet, hold your question. Next week, we'll answer your yeah, question. Yeah, we've run out of time, but there was a question that uh, from a very passionate conservationist overseas that said to Shannon, um, you know, how do you go from moving your career and your, your world from, from living in the States to working on major conservation issues on the other side of the world? Um, and so we'll be basically interviewing Shannon on her story <laughs> and um, how she got it done so that other people that, that want to get involved as she has got involved have a roadmap. So we'll dedicate some time to that okay, next Shanzo, week. You're going to be the guest next week. <laughs> yes. I think that'll just be a little part of it. <laughs> well, either way, either way. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much. We'll chat again next week. Take care. Bye. We must rethink our relationship with wildlife, the environment, and each other. Join us as we uncover the innovative, unifying, and urgent solutions we need to protect the planet from ourselves. This is the art of conservation.